Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. It's a Ready Player One episode, but first we talk about Netflix, some Studio Ghibli news, um, some news about the Korean Film Council, then we go sh- geek out about Steven Spielberg's new film, Ready Player One. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk inside the Oasis itself is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, Paul. I, I am. Uh, I have trouble uh, distinguishing reality from, from gaming, but how are you? What, what, what is your avatar's name, sir? Uh, I, I think it's just me, but thinner. Okay. <laughs> that's me yeah <laughs> it's, it's not it's not an actual golden rock right you wouldn't take on no, a, a rock like avatar no <laughs> no <laughs> what would your your ways uh avatar be oh wow um i don't know i mean i it's like i would want to create something original to be sure i wouldn't want to just be like a carbon copy of like batman or you know, uh, Ryu or something like that. So I'd want to, I would want to do something original and get my own flair on it. Um, and probably something Fox related as that's, you know, tied into my name. <laughs> I know that some, like some of my, some of my characters online and different online games, uh, I typically use Fox lore as, as the tag. Um, so it'd be something along those lines, I think, if I were in the Oasis itself. Well, I might be a horse because my my last name means means horse mm. uh, in Chinese. So I might be one of those, or I might be one of the minions. Who knows? I mean, one yeah. of the minions is called Kevin. That's right. That's right. And he had his own movie. Um, suddenly, I'm picturing Kevin Ma as a kind of centaur. <laughs> of course, of course, with you as the front, not the back. So <laughs> <laughs> I would literally become a horse's ass. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be too far uh, from reality. Yes. <laughs> so we are here to talk about uh, the latest uh, Steven Spielberg film, Ready Player One. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, a little bit of Netflix news up here at the front. Not really news, but a little bit of a gripe. I'm usually so pro and happy on on, on sort of the happy camp for Netflix uh, that I do come across perhaps sometimes as a fanboy. But I do have a little bit of a bone to pick with Netflix of late. Um, and that is because I recently got done, We fi- I finished Terrace House um, early last week, and so now I'm kind of in this black hole of waiting, and uh, Love Wagon doesn't actually start until the 19th, I think, so waiting for that, that series to drop. But I started this new series called um, Everything Sucks, which is, if I were to describe it, it is kind of like a netflix version of freaks and geeks if you're familiar with that series the series which Mm. launched um people like seth rogan and james franco and a bunch of others and was really it's still highly regarded today even though it was canceled into its first season um but it was kind of like this millennial turn of the millennium kind of you know high school experience 
And so this show is kind of like that. Um, it's based around kids in high school in this place called uh, Boring, Oregon. And they are primarily making up the AV group and the drama group, right? And so it's like kids who are interested in making movies and stuff in high school. And so that kind of initially attracted me to the story. And the kids who are acting in this are, are really superb. And uh, it's got a lot of music from the 90s, and, and it's got that kind of idea of being set in the 90s, you know, when VHS was king. And so there's movie references and a lot of music references and a, and a bit of nostalgia, even though I think it's a little bit late for um, a Gen Xer like myself. It's kind of on the Gen X, Gen Y cusp because um, I was out of high school by the time, you know, these kids are in high school by a couple of years. But still, I can really relate to the culture, the music, and a, a lot of the stuff that they're going for in terms of nostalgia. So I got through this series, 10 episodes, really great. Um, loved what they did with it. You know, it's much of the, much of it is, is geared for these kids kind of making a student movie, which is this high concept science fiction thing that they're going for that only high school kids can do. Um, and it's got a lot of other themes uh, going on. That's the, the main, one of the main female characters. It's kind of her story about coming out during this era as well. And um, just some really interesting character relationships and dynamics. And come to find out, as soon as I finished last episode, I went online and started searching around and saying, all right, when, you know, has this been approved for season two? And Netflix has already canceled it. Um, so this is one of, in that in this batch of new Netflix originals that have already been canceled very early on by Netflix. And we talked about some of these before, like uh, The Get Down and some others. Um, and it's it's kind of irritating that, you know, this thing has only been out since I think February is when it initially got released or, or late January. And already it's been, you know, given the axe. Um, and for a time, Netflix was, for me, this beacon of things that rescued shows, good shows from cable networks that got axed for things like ratings that were just average but not performing well enough. And now it seems that Netflix is more and more starting to eke into this territory. And I'm, I'm kind of disappointed by that because, um, you know, everybody has a favorite show and you don't like it when a favorite show goes away. But I thought Netflix was starting to challenge that model. And now it seems like they're starting to slip more into the network mode of things. They want really big hits Game of Thrones-style things, blockbusters, or nothing at all, right? Um, so, I don't know. I, has this been on your radar at all, Kevin? No, I mean, I have a, t I have a really long Netflix queue that I don't even know where it extends to. It might extend all the way to where you are in Florida. You have to line up all the shows that I've been <laughs> trying to watch. Um, everything sucks. I've heard about it, but there wasn't much buzz. You know, I think... There are a couple. I don't think they're just one of those Game of Thrones or nothing network. I think there are a couple ways to gauge it. Um, I mean, first of all, they can't go by ratings because ratings don't really mean anything to them because it doesn't mean more subscribers. What they're looking for, um, more important to them, is buzz. And the fact that Terra's House has even Western uh, think pieces about it means that there's buzz. Means that it would draw subscribers, and I think that's how the Netflix model is. So either a show picks up buzz and lots of uh, either buzz or award nominations or big names attached to it. You know, they want to, you know, have big names, big branding things. Those are, I think those are three factors that Netflix go by. 
Um, and sometimes it doesn't always work out. I mean, you know, TV. You no, know, you were saying Freaks and Geeks, and Freaks. You know, NBC got rid rid of Freaks and Geeks in how many seasons? Is it one or two? Within the first season, pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty quickly, right? It just happens, and and again, it's a bit more different than Netflix. I mean, Netflix is sort of like cable networks, right? Cable networks are willing to give a show um, more time, even ratings are bad if people are talking about it. If there's a big name attached, if it gets them awards, that's how they gauge whether a show should continue being on air. And um, I think it's a fair model. I think there's so much. It is the golden age of TV, and there's a long, long line of creators waiting to get their shot. Um, and, you know, I think Amazon is being even worse right now. We're, yeah. Amazon just cleared out a whole batch of shows even amazon um what was it um mozart in the jungle which i'm a huge fan of um has got rid of that show even though it won them a golden globe uh, a couple years ago um they're being even less patient because they are trying to chase the netflix model they're trying to chase hbo yeah uh and they're spending what they spent what how many how many millions of dollars to do lord of the rings I don't even know how many, tons of money, right? Yeah. Um. So in that sense, I think I think Netflix is still a bit more patient than 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 Amazon. But for Christ's sake, Netflix, stop investing in shit, crappy movies. I was said to stop investing in crappy movies. Yeah. Stop investing in crappy movies. And I, and I'm looking at you, uh, Titan, because that was a terrible movie. <laughs> The thing is, the thing is, uh, uh, I I know I know why filmmakers love Netflix because Netflix, they're just like. Okay, we got this big name. Oh, the script is kind of like the script. Okay, well, let's do it. And then they give they give the the filmmakers um, total freedom, right? That's the idea. And it almost seems like the wave of bad reviews coming in means that perhaps Netflix should double think should, should you know rethink that strategy because I think these creators have gone. You realize why why studio interference exists. You realize why producers exist. You realize why there's so many gatekeepers that stop a filmmaker from their original vision because sometimes it could be crap and perhaps <laughs> it's true it's true i'm an artist myself but let's face it sometimes it's good to get that second opinion you know um it, it, and i think a netflix film model is starting to prove that um but i don't have you heard had another news about netflix this week paul uh with guard in regards to can no i haven't so if you remember last year um can allowed two films into their competition um and it, it created this huge fuss because uh because uh a french law says that uh a film that debuts in cinemas cannot be on streaming service for 36 months so that was a huge fuss but of course netflix doesn't do that they do day and date and it would be unfair for french audiences to get a netflix film three years after it's been released in theaters after everyone else gets it three years before that so it'd be unfair so there's no point um so it was a huge fuss, and then and then this year, Can says um, uh, says that uh, Netflix film would not be in competition because they refuse to be in cinemas and uh, they refuse to give a, a early cinema release. So now Netflix is threatening, as of last week, apparently according to some trade papers, that Netflix was uh, threatening pull their films entirely out of Can, and that's really sad because they include uh, a new film by Paul Greengrass which who directed uh United 93 and of course the Born trilogy uh, the Born films um and and also a new film by Alfonso Cuarón the the director of uh, Gravity is is Roma his return to Mexico and that would have been a huge huge deal to be in the Cannes competition i can see why the film industry feels threatened by Netflix because the way that Netflix churns out movies is that 
they do it on a mass scale and they do it without the proper they without they do it they don't do event movies you know what i mean the way that netflix does it they don't do event movies they don't make they don't give enough attention to a certain film to make it worth an investment of say 100 million dollars 150 million dollars mm-hmm. um and i can see why the film industry feels pissed about that because i made this 150 million dollar investment i am going to make it an event i have to make it an event that's the only way i can maximize my profit my return um and and i can see why they don't like the netflix model because cinema to this day is still the best way to get revenue because as much as netflix pays yes it's a big deal that netflix paid 50 million dollars for cloverfield but if you spend 150 million dollars on Ready Player One and you sell a global rights to Netflix for 50 million, you're still 100 million dollars short. So, it's it's still the best way to make back a, a, a investment on a film is still the cinema. It's still the theatrical model, whether you like it or not. It's still the theatrical model, and anything that eats into that theatrical model hurts hurts the film investment, hurt the film studios. It just hurts a lot of people. Although, as an audience member, I love it. I love it. I love being able to see Annihilation two weeks after it comes out in the States. I love it. Okay, let's face it. I love it. Uh, uh, but but I can see, as an aspiring filmmaker, as someone who does need these people to support a film that I want to make, to make sure they give me the maximum investment that they can give me, I can understand why they have gripes. All right. Well, that... Uh... We always end up on these long rants about Netflix. <laughs> and uh, we will have more in the future, I'm sure, as these things continue to change. Uh, if you have some thoughts you'd like to share with us, do drop us a line and let us know on which side of this uh, virtual cinematic boundary you fall. All right, we've got a couple news stories for this week, so back over to Kevin with this week's news. Here at the news desk, we're starting out uh, with a sad bit of news. Um, Studio Ghibli co-founder Isao Takahata uh, died last week, late last week, at the age of 82. Um, so as I said earlier, those of you who don't know, I mean, Hayao Miyazaki is the spiritual leader of, of uh, and well, practically, the, in, all, in all sort of uh, practical ways, it's uh, Toshio Suzuki's producer and Hayao Miyazaki's director, and Isao Takahata... It was sort of the uh, he was a co-founder of a studio, but he was always kind of like the guy who who works in the other studio in the other building, you know. But he's still a, a very much a spiritual, um, a, a very large presence in Studio Ghibli, and uh, of course, uh, you guys know that he directed Great for the Fireflies, which remains one of the best animated films ever made, I think. Um, and a bit of trivia: Great for the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro actually was released as a double feature. Uh, back in the day in Japan, which means, um, and the order wasn't there was no set set order, so you either watch um, uh, 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 Miyazaki, you know, My Neighbor Totoro, and you happy come out all happy, and then you watch Great for Fireflies and come out and want to shoot yourself. Yes, um, <laughs> you're destroyed if you watch it in that order. Yes, but you watch it in the other order. You watch Great for Fireflies, want to shoot yourself, and then you watch My Neighbor Totoro. Then everything's all right. But um. Yeah, uh, but he also made uh, quite a few number of films. Of course, he started out uh, as an animator, and he made um, uh, he was a storyboard a director on Gegege no Kitado, a lot of TV, TV anime series, and then he co-founded um, Studio Ghibli later with with Miyazaki, and he also worked as a producer on a few, several Miyazaki's films be- uh, with with Studio Ghibli. Um, he also made. Um, 
other films he made, Only Yesterday, Pompoko, My Neighbor the Yamadas, and uh, of course his last film um, was uh, tale, A Tale of Princess Kaguya, and he also served as an artistic producer on uh, The Red Turtle, which was also produced by Studio Ghibli. Uh, so real sad news, um, according to um, Mr. Suzuki, the producer, uh, there will be a huge farewell ceremony at the Studio Ghibli headquarters uh, for Mr. Takata, and... Um, yeah, uh, he he's just a great, great, great director, great, great artist, and uh, we're all going to miss him, I think. Perhaps not a, a name that's as big in Western circles as, as Miyazaki himself, but if you followed anime for a, a long period of time like I have, I mean, he's got fingers in lots of different properties. He worked on the Lupin 3 movie. Or TV series back in the 70s. Um, I think, you know, there are some of these adaptations of, like, European stories like Heidi. Um, and uh, he, he, I think he worked on that as well. One of my favorite series, um, which uh, I remember watching when I, back when I was studying Japanese, uh, Future Boy Conan. I know he did a little mm-hmm. bit of work on that as well. Um, you know, so he's, he's had a lot of influence both in, like, television series, anime series over the years as well as, um, you know, a lot of the movies that we've come to know uh, and love. I mean, producer for Naushka, which is, uh, you know, still my favorite of, of um, the sort of classic Miyazaki films, just because that was one of the very first manga um, that I ever read, and one of the first Japanese animated feel- feature films that I ever saw, even though when I first saw it, that, it was under the title Warriors of the Wind, which was this new line cinema had somehow acquired the rights and they had they had got it and dubbed it and released it uh cinematically and i remember i have i somewhere in storage i've got a vhs tape of that still um and it's not a great it's it's you know you've you've had much better dubs of the miyazaki films over the years when you know especially when disney got a hold of them they got some big names in there um but just you know somebody who's had his hands in a lot of the things that we consider um, classic, you know, anime. And if we were going to introduce anime, either TV series or films to anybody, you know, um, th- this is some of the stuff that we usually, you know, start off with. Uh, even for uh, my five-year-old, we started her off with Totoro, um, I think a couple months ago, and then we moved over to Kiki's Delivery Service um, uh, shortly thereafter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait before we get onto Castle in the Sky and Nushka, I think I'm going to wait about a year because those do have a little bit more violent themes in them. Um, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen his, I didn't see Tale of Princess Kaguya yet. Uh, is that a good one, Kevin? Oh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. It's, I mean, it's it's a bit slow. <laughs> As we, I mean, Takahata's films were rarely just made for entertainment value, right? And Takahata was very much into making um, I just read Wikipedia, and, and Miyazaki said that it was Takata who instilled a sense of social responsibility in, in Miyazaki's story, and that's how much a very huge influence on him. So Miyazaki, um, Takata was never only about making, you know, comic book-like movies or, or you know, animation, just animated films for kids. He's always made very serious films, uh, or even my neighbor the Yamadas, you know, there's a bit of poignancy there, uh, even though that's very light and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, Kaguya is very slow and it's very meditative, but it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous film, and it says so much about how much different 
Takahata was from Miyazaki. Miyazaki is a very, very standard. Now he's a very signature look to his films, right? Very, uh, uh, almost patented look to his films. But Takahata tries different um, animation styles all the time. If you look at Kaguya, it's it's almost like a, a watercolor painting the entire film. It and and it's amazing that you know a, a director who's at such at that age with so much experience keeps trying new things. Um, and it's uh, it's I think it's one of the most gorgeous films you ever see, Paul. Mm. Um, I have to look up now. I'm looking at my wall because I'm I sit right next to my DVD shelf when I record, and I don't remember if I bought a copy of Pompoko Blu-ray. So now I have to we have to record to stand up and and, and look at the shelf. If not, I'm gonna have to rectify that correct uh, very quickly. Mm. So uh, second bit of news, um, the as you guys know might know um, last week. Um, Former South Korean President Park Geun-hye was convicted of, uh, well, a whole series of crimes. Mostly it was in the influence peddling scandal um, that involved a friend and him, and her um, asserting her, abusing her power to get her way. And one of those things uh, reportedly was a blacklist uh, that was at the Korean Film Council that blocked funding for uh, certain filmmakers um who were uh, who has proven themselves to be anti-establishment or anti-conservative government, um, and the Korean Film Council, you know, big investigation revealed that that list was real, and the Korean Film Council officially apologized uh, last week for for that um, uh, list because now it has a new um, a new director, a new head, and he's looked looked into things and and he's uh promised to rectify things he's admitted that the blacklist exists and um and included actually they even said that actually the the, the blacklist goes all the way back to the previous administration with uh, president Lee bun heck mac and who also was arrested last week actually or two weeks ago uh for for corruption nothing related to this blacklist um but yeah apparently um into that according to director uh o uh, the new president of the the, the Korean Film Council, um, he says in 2009, Kofik unfairly intervened in a number of support program selection processes and employed expedients to select the beneficiaries following the Blue House guidelines. Blue House is the Korean equivalent of the White House. Um, so while as as terrible as all this sounds, it's actually quite hopeful that um, Korea um, has done this um has corrected its ways and and is doing things to to improve things um hopefully korea will continue that way down that way because for a few years it seemed very dark when the conservative government took over and the right wing the whole government the whole the whole country was leading right wing and uh a lot of these things were happening but uh i'm glad that the people came out and and righted their wrongs and it seems now uh things hopefully will get better Yes, yeah, so I hope so. I mean, I wasn't it in the news just yesterday, the day before, that the uh, former president was sentenced, right? Yeah, she was sentenced to twenty-four years in jail. Of course, she denied the charges. She did was she wasn't even in court. Like she refused to go to court because she thinks that is some kind of political conspiracy. But you know, once again, this um, the hard work of a lot of journalists that help uncover all these scandals and and uncover a lot of things. I know a certain president would keep coming out and say this is fake news, but then, um, you know, people saw what was going on. They came out and protested and helped do their part to raise 
the attention necessary for the government to take action and lead to everything that's happened now. So it just it's it again shows really the power um the power of 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 uh, collective action really uh, you know even show that there is hope uh, when you do these type of things. I don't know if it would happen in Hong Kong. I don't want to get into that, but yeah, it's it's um it shows how in Asia even more more often than 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 not that the government do does interfere with the artistic cultural industries the creative industries um you see in korea um in in of course in hong kong of course in china of course in southeast asia um and that's how, what we're dealing with here on this side of the world all right i think that's going to wrap it up for our news this week just a short bit of news when we come back our in-depth review of steven spielberg's Ready Player One. And welcome back. So no East Screen Review this week. We wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about the latest film from Steven Spielberg, Ready Player One. This is based on the very popular novel of the same name from Ernest Cline, a novel which I have read, and having read that, I have a lot to say about this adaptation, as it were. Um, but I'm going to uh, let my uh, host and good friend, Kevin Ma, give his thoughts first before I get into that. And we're probably going to have some spoiler talk uh, together about this film at the end, so I'll be sure to put up a spoiler warning. If you're not familiar, though, let me just break down the story briefly. Um, a young boy named Wade Watts and his online friend, who goes by the call sign H, spend all of their time inside the Oasis, a near full immersion virtual reality simulation that consists of many, many realms. Much of their time is spent in pursuit of something known as Holiday's Egg, a hidden series of quests paced, um, placed in the simulation by late creator James Holiday. The prize for finding Holiday's Egg is control of the entire Oasis itself and a whole lot of money. When Wade manages to clear the first of three challenges that leads to the egg, the race is on between Wade, his friends, and a corporation known as IOI that wants to win the prize for their own use. All right, so, Kevin, I'm going to throw the ball over to you. Tell us about Ready Player One. Well, I, I think it's interesting that well, it was my idea to just do this um, uh, for the whole episode because I'm someone who never read the book. You know, I, I have no zero interest in, in comparing the book and the film. And I know, Paul, you're going to get into that quite a bit in a bit. Well, haha, <laughs> sorry, in a bit, in a bit. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, just the film. You know, I'm a huge fan of Spielberg. I, I have to first put that out. I think that Spielberg is unfairly criticized. I know he represents a lot of things that people associate with Hollywood blockbusters and the worst things about Hollywood blockbusters. But I think um, that unfairly clouds what what the skill the skills that Spielberg has a filmmaker as a storyteller as just a brilliant master of cinematic technique yes he was he came from the same generation as Coppola and 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 Kubrick and you know even George Lucas uh, and, and 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 you know all those really great film Scorsese of course but the thing is he does what he does really really well and he does it um, much, much better than a lot of filmmakers working today. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that enough. Um, so with that said, um, I had so much fun with Ready Player One. I was 
it, it, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I know that the early reviews say that it was kind of Spielberg going back to sort of his entertaining, you know, his roller coaster days, you know, of making these big cinematic spectacle and just having making fun, fun movies. And I don't know what they're talking about because, you know, it's not like Spielberg has sort of missed a beat. I mean, he did. I think Tintin was extremely fun. I think um, BFG was fun in its own really kid friendly way, I thought. Um, what else has he done lately? Um um, before Bridge of Spies, yeah, he, yes, he's done some of more important films lately, right? Bridge of Spies or The Post, um, I, I, War Horse or things like that. But um, and even then, I don't think he still sort of miss a beat in how good he is. Um, so, so I was ready for this, and and I had so much fun with it. It's just, um, I think visually, it, it's totally spectacular. Um, I'm not even getting to the, the the whole Easter egg thing, which I know everyone is talking about. I think as a as a as a film with just amazing techniques, and I think it just shows that no one really does spectacle like Spielberg. Um, just look at that that car race, that that car chase, and around 20 minutes in, um, it's this long car chase sequence um, where um, a bunch of cars trying to chase for the first clue. And and you got a lot of different creatures popping, a lot of different obstacles. They're flying over bridges, and you got the dinosaur from T Rex from Jurassic Park, and you got King Kong jumping over and destroying cars. I was just amazed, like my jaw dropped. I was amazed that a seventy-year-old director can still pull this off. Um, and yeah, yeah, I just had so much fun with this. Um, so and it keeps delivering. I mean, you got the ending, and you have all these um, the big battle happening, and you got all these characters going at each other, and everything's coming together. I mean, this is a film that needs to be seen on the big screen. So we're going back to the Netflix thing right now, right, Paul? <laughs> this film needs to be seen on the big screen because how else can you catch everything? Yes, I work for a magazine that is trying to promote in-flight entertainment. But I am telling you, this must be seen on a big screen just so you can catch everything. Just to be in awe of, you know, remind you of the magic of watching a movie on a big screen. Now, is it a flawed film? Yes, yes. It's a very flawed film. The script is very flawed. Um, I, had a, I had a problem with the first act when the um, uh, director, I mean, scriptwriter Zach Penn and Ernest Klein, who also is a co-writer, by the way, um, they sort of took a shortcut Um and and just explain everything by voiceover. That is one of the most laziest things you can do as a as a as a as a storyteller. But the film's already 140 minutes, and you know, okay, I can understand that. And the whole film pushes this message of you know how reality still supersedes the the fantasy world, and it felt very disingenuous to me. I I didn't think I felt like that was only sort of thrown in. I don't even think Spielberg. You know, believes in it because, you know, he is a he is the dream maker. He is the guy who makes these fantasy worlds for audiences with each film, and he has his job to make sure the audiences get lost in these worlds. So, who is he to tell people like, yeah, but reality is still better. But you know, I make films. You know, I make I make these fantasy worlds. So, it feels a bit disingenuous for a film to be telling people about you know re- how reality is better, especially from a director who is not exactly you know the representation of realism cinema. Um, so in that sense, that was a bit weird. Um, but I think just pure technique, just pure logical advancement, pure technique, and just having, just creating a sense of fun and entertainment. And 
and making it all look so easy, you know, like like he does it with zero effort. Um, I think no no one really does it better than Spielberg, and and for that, um, I I think it's one of the most fun I had. There was a couple of moments that I really really laugh, and I think I have to save this for the spoiler section, right, Paul? Because I probably shouldn't review those, but I just from from the first sa- the first note of Van Halen, the Van Halen song jump, I was already smiling ear to ear, like. I just I was in the mood I was in a mood to to go on that journey and then and then just being on that bandwagon and, and going through the whole thing and then coming out. Um yeah, it was just um one of those things where as much as I am about artistic integrity and film art and all that stuff, sometimes you need something entertaining, you know. Especially I was watching this right in the middle of um Hong Kong Film Festival. So I was almost sad to have to finish this and then go back to watching art films. I was like, how do I come down from this high? And sometimes that's all you kind of need from a movie. And for that, um, for me, Ready Player One was a huge, huge success. I can't, I couldn't wait to go back. Let's say, by the time I was watching a car chase, I was like, I can't wait to watch this movie again. And I still feel this way. I, I if I have time, I'm gonna try and go watch it again. Unfortunately, I don't yet. But yeah, um, if I have time, I, I can't wait to see this movie again. Okay, is it my turn? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's your turn, Paul. <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to go through this again. We're going to save spoilers to discuss uh, for the end here, and I'll put up a a sound blog to make sure that uh, you you know are forewarned when that section comes. But, um, yeah, as somebody who read the book and who loved the book, and I am a Spielberg fan, I always have been, but I have to say uh, the movie is a good time. For the general audience, but it pales like, like me. <laughs> it pales in comparison to the book. It does. Everything is just so super simplified. Um, the the first example I can give of this is that all the kids who form the central group, which they call the High Five, live in and around Columbus, Ohio, right? Um, rather than all over the world. This is supposed to be a story about people who meet in this massive online virtual world who are separated by a massive amount of distance and they manage to come together and and try to work together to you know overcome challenges both in the virtual space and in the real space um and they just clump them all together here uh and it's just all compressed and with that compression they also compress the virtual world it feels so small by comparison um you know, one of the things that they talk about in the book is they make references to game spaces like EverQuest, like um, uh, Ultima Online. I mean, a, a lot of the original first virtual spaces, some that still exist today, you know, all of these places exist in the Oasis. There are planets, deti- you know, that are built, that are dedicated to entire musical albums, right? An entire planet built around a, the idea of a concept album. Um, and I know that, again, as Kevin said, this is a two hour and 40 minute film. So changes had to be made, cuts had to be made, but still the idea here is that people escape into this place because it offers so much, but what they end up showing us feels like so very little. And I think that's rather unfortunate that they could not get a good sense of the scope that I think the book has. Um, and, and, you know, what they do give us is a sense of, the grandiose in terms of, oh, this is a big r- car chase sequence. But 
in the end, it's still a car chase sequence, whether it's in the virtual space or it's happening on the streets of San Francisco. Um, so I think the Oasis and the world itself feel tiny by comparison. And that was perhaps one of my one of my bigger points of discontent uh, with the film is that it just felt so small. I expected it to be um, so much bigger. Uh, but really, if I, if I have something that I walked away from the cinema just grinding my teeth and <laughs> right from the get-go, it was that Spielberg changed pretty much all of the challenges. So there are three challenges that have to be overcome to get to the gate. And each of the challenges is more than just one challenge because there's a challenge to get the key and that, that gives you a riddle and then the key and the riddle lead you to the gate, which then has another challenge that you have to overcome. And all of the challenges are different um, in, turn, in, in, in what Spielberg does here. Um, I mean, there's a minor similar, similarity in the second challenge, um, but I'll talk more about that in spoilers. But the only one that really stays in place is the very final challenge. So if you read the book and you know what the very final challenge is, they do that here. Um, and, and okay, I'm happy with that. But my favorite challenge was the very first challenge. And what they gave us instead was a DeLorean version of Mario Kart, basically. Um, realistic Mario Kart, nonetheless, with, you know, uh, a fancy motorcycle that's recognizable for anime fans and a giant monkey and whatnot. But it's still, you know, Mario Kart. And that's not what the challenges in the book are about. The challenges in the book are geared towards games, music, movies, and things from the 80s. And here they're changed and they're spread out and it becomes less about Halliday's obsession because Halliday, as a character who created the Oasis, his fascination was with the 80s, this time period when he grew up. So a lot of the pop culture references in the book are going to speak to people like myself who had that experience, who played computer games on things like the Atari and some of the very earliest game systems and spent countless hours and quarters inside, you know, arcades and, and watched movies on VHS over and over until the VHS tapes started to, you know, uh, lose lose quality and, and break and things. Um, so the book is about stuff like that. It's about music from that period. It's about the lyrics from that period, and all interspersed. And ultimately what happens is Spielberg takes that apart, deconstructs it, and reconstructs it with his own... His, his own popular culture fascinations, we might say. And part of that, I think he does for a reason, and that's because of licensing issues in some cases. A very specific licensing issue, which I'll talk about in a little bit in the spoiler section. But part of it, too, is just because of certain things that, you know, certain relationships that he has to certain people in, in Hollywood and things. And so... Well, I've read some articles that have argued that what he does is that he makes the challenges much more approachable to a general audience, recognizable to a general audience. And yeah, that's true. But he also fundamentally changes the the framework of the book by doing so. Um, and so that's that's a major disappointment. That was a major disappointment from the get-go for me. The moment I sat down and and he changed the very first challenge into a car race. And I'm just like, 
Okay, I know <laughs> I, 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 I know where I know where this is going. I know what to expect. <laughs> now that's not to say again, I'm it sounds like I'm bashing this movie, and I am bashing this movie in comparison with the novel. And I admit I need to sit down and watch this movie again. Now that my expectations have been dashed against the rocks and shattered into a million pieces. <laughs> Uh, I need to go in and watch this as a separate kind of movie from the book, and I think I can do that now that I've got some distance between um, the the first viewing, and and I will do that uh, when I get some time, which I don't have, like Kevin said. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, so you have this idea of the changes to what for me are sort of the core framework of the book. Um, he he re, he re puts in other things, you know. Sure, Jump is also a classic song from the eighties. You know the the Rush album, twenty one twelve is a major component of one of the challenges. I think he's got a poster at some point in in James Halliday's room that we see, but that's about it. Um, for those who know, Dungeons and Dragons is a big component of the first challenge. He's got an iconic image, I think, on the side of um, of H's van uh, in the real world from that. But you know, it's just like these fleeting references in place of what was originally there. And what we get instead are things that aren't 80 specific in many cases. In some cases, they go a little bit before the 80s. In other cases, they're well after the 80s. And lots and lots of East visual Easter eggs, um, which I think for a general audience, they're going to lap it up. They're going to love it. And it's going to speak to people across a variety of generations, especially younger kids. I mean, one of the things with movies like this is Spielberg made these as for sort of family-friendly movies. So a movie like this is going to speak to adults in some levels, and it's but it's also going to speak to kids who play Minecraft and who grew up playing Halo and who, when they think of the Ninja Turtles, they think of the new movie version of the Ninja Turtles instead of the old 80s cartoon version, um, you know, like I did. So that's a strategic choice, and it's a choice that I think appeases a wider audience. But in that appeasement, I think there's a big sacrifice that's made. And for people like me, big fans of the book, again, I recognize the book speaks to a very specific experience from a very specific class of people in a very specific time period, right? Because <laughs> um, not everybody was in the middle class in the 80s. Not everybody had an Atari 2600. I, my parents were poor. And I had to go over to a friend's house to play an Atari 2600. But I still had that experience. You know, I was still able to, to, to grasp onto some of that. And so um, that's one of the things that really pulled at the nostalgia strings for me um, with regard to the book. Um, anyway, there are a lot of other things that connect this movie to Spielberg. And Spielberg himself is a major component in the book. I mean, his creations are part of the pop culture foundation of the 80s as well and they're mentioned frequently in the book as well so it's it's interesting to have him here as the head of the film and and it was interesting too that he kind of didn't do a lot of self-reference we do get again the t-rex as a kind of jurassic park reference and you have in you know him in producer roles on some things or his company touching on other things but i mean there's no direct references to like indie and and stuff like that there are loose hints uh to things here and there so um it's not that he was just you know lapping up the the nostalgic references 
to himself in in pr pr producing this film but he does touch on things that he's a big fan of uh and that speaks especially to the i think the second challenge which um we'll talk about again in the spoiler section um i will say that uh, one interesting thing that i did read was the character of james halliday himself who um uh the actor mark rylance mark rylance okay who was the giant in the bfg and he's here as james halliday who's a very much he's he's like a willy wonka kind of character uh in the book but he's a lot more animated and exaggerated in the way he is in the book he's very downplayed and very kind of um uh, soft-spoken uh, as portrayed by my Mark Rylance and one article I read actually attributed this to being perhaps an Easter egg of its own as a point to Steven Spielberg's friend George Lucas um, saying that you know Rylance's performance of Halliday was basically a kind of George Lucas performance um, as you know I guess Stephen has viewed his friendship with Lucas over the years. So I found that to be interesting. Um, and I, I do think he worked well as the holiday role. He doesn't have a major role. Uh, I will say in terms of the visuals, though, I was kind of surprised that uh, the Oasis didn't look as good as I had expected. I mean, I was kind of hoping that this was going to be a film that pushed the boundaries forward the way that Avatar did years ago. But when I'm watching this and I'm seeing, I mean, it's got some interesting effects, but most of the characters within the space of the Oasis um, are just skins. And I mean, I don't think there's anything spectacular or groundbreaking there in terms of the overall visuals. I think the character of Artemis, the female Avatar, it, she's kind of got some uncanny valley going on she looks a little similar to the uh character that they're doing for the battle angel alita movie in that you know her eyes are kind of wide and almost anime anime-esque and can be a little bit off-putting at times um but it's not it's not really pushing the boundaries as much as stuff i think we've seen in actual video games like a lot of the final fantasy movies and and the this the series of late i would say I don't think, but, that... but I think, but I think that video, as long as video games doesn't, video games have never been really pushing that that kind of visual. Though I think that it that that kind of imperfection makes it even more believable as a video game world to me, though. Perhaps, yeah, but I mean, if you look at if you look at the the um, some of the cutscenes, or I know there was a movie that I haven't watched yet for the latest Final Fantasy. I mean, the level of quality of animation, the way that it looks like anime it's still you still know these characters aren't real but then it kind of you know it's kind of starting to blur the boundaries because some of the male characters actually look more like boy band members and maybe that's because boy band members are looking more like anime characters too so <laughs> it's 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 kind of this weird progression um that that i've seen come out of this and i just i don't know i didn't think that it stood out quite as well and maybe you know, to your point, they because they were blending it with other properties, you know, that these characters had to be on par with, um, at times, you know, the, like, Goro from uh, Mortal Kombat or the Ninja Turtles or things that are going to be on the same 
screen as them, that there had to be this kind of balance there. So I can kind of understand that. I just don't think that this is going to go down as a movie that's remembered for visually, you know, pushing any technical um, boundaries as such. Um, And look, I get it. I mean, Klein, it was his first novel, and it was a big success for him. I, I know he's got a second novel out that I haven't read yet called Armada, which was okay received, but not as well received as his first one. And I mean, here's a guy who obviously knows a lot about 80s, 90s pop culture, revels in it, loves it, wrote about it, got success writing about it. And here's one of the very people he was writing about in terms of, you know, pop culture artifacts coming to direct it and saying, hey, come on board and write for me as I direct this thing. You know, he, how could he possibly say no? He couldn't. He is he is the Wade Watts here, and you know, himself meeting his hero, uh, James Halliday, in the form of, of Steven Spielberg. Um, so he couldn't. So, he, But, I mean, even though he was on the writing staff, it's still it's so stripped down with so many of the references stripped away that it just feels like a, a bare-bones version. Um, and that's just, again, a testament to how much is really crammed in the book. And as I said, yes, an intellectual property nightmare from a production standpoint. I get that. The fact that they got as much in there as they did, I think, is amazing. Uh, Sacrifices did have to be made. I do need to watch it again. But also, and back to our Netflix argument, this would have been so much better as a 10-episode Netflix series. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it would no gotten, one could be able to afford it no one would be able to afford it I know I, I don't I I don't know because I saw what they did with Altered Carbon earlier this year and that looked supremely expensive and yeah with the intellectual properties maybe that would have put the cost over the top but still so much better as a single season Netflix series um so yeah so there's my twisted take on it take that for what it's worth but if you're a general moviegoer please direct yourself over to Kevin's review of this Because, again, Mm -hmm. he represents, I think, a fair assessment of an audience member who's going into this without any baggage. And I have lots and lots of baggage for this. So, um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Okay, so, Kevin, why don't you lead us off with spoilers you would like to discuss? Um... Well, okay, I know you were talking about the chase, but I like the car chase. I'm sorry. I know the thing is, I know you're beholden to the book quite a bit, and it's always the case. It's always the case. You read the book, and then the adaptation turns out to be not as good. Somehow it simplifies things. It's not how you imagine in your head. The best adaptation of a book is always the one in your head. That's true. That's what's going to happen. That's That's, That's natural. But I didn't. What was the first challenge then? Tell me about the first challenge. It was well, not the, the car chase. I, 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 the first challenge is um, based on a very classic, famous Dungeons and Dragons novel, where um, it's basically kind of brought to life, and he has to go through to the end of the end of the adventure, um, the, the module that is not a novel, D and D module. So he has to play, th- go through it on his own, get to the end, and then there's a video game challenge. So a lot of the challenges here are are parallel. There's a video game challenge where he actually has to play a stand-up video game, right, against mm-hmm. against another opponent. Um, mm-hmm. And then some of the other challenges were he actually has to act out a movie, right? Um, but 
he's actually in the movie. He becomes like the character in the central character in a movie. Um, so unlike what they do in the second challenge where the guys are kind of all in, in, you know, the shining in the hotel and trying to survive a couple of the iconic scenes, he ends up uh, having to play through two different famous geeky movies. Um, do you want me to spoil them for you or do it? We're in the spoiler section. Yeah. yeah. Well, cause you haven't read the book. So, um, Oh, I don't, the, I don't have time to read books. Oh. <laughs> the, 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 in the second challenge, I think he has to play through the entirety of war games. Um, mm. And then in the final challenge, he has to do the entirety of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, man. So, and, you know, it's like one of the things where if he, you know, if he gets the line wrong, you know, he gets a penalty. If he gets the line correct and he remembers the action, he gets like, you know, more points and so forth. And he, and he doesn't go through the entire thing in the book, but, you know, they make reference to a couple classic scenes. And, and I was thinking, how are they going to do this in the movie? But it reminded me a little bit of Forrest Gump. There, would be a, there was a great opportunity for them to kind of do a Forrest Gump kind of thing, you know. But then again, you're talking about movie rights within a movie, and I know that that would, um, that would be hard to do. Um, he has to play the video, the Japanese video game, which originally was called Black Dragon in the U.S. It was called Black Tiger. Um, and he ends up having to do that in first person perspective, even though that was kind of like a side scroller. So it was a lot of focus on old video games from the 80s and classic geeky movies from uh, the 80s and 90s. And they, you know, they, they again, they, they change things around. The, the first one, I think he plays Joust. I don't know if you ever played Joust. Um, no. And, I mean, how would you do that? I kept thinking, how how would you film that to make it exciting and dynamic for a movie? And maybe they just figured you couldn't. You know, it, the way he writes about it, it's fine. But maybe they just thought it'd be much more dynamic as a car chase. And, okay, fine. But I so wanted to see him walk through that D and D module because I played that module with my friends, and and we all died in that module, and we have, you know, <laughs> we have major memories of that module. Um, and again, like I said, very specific '80s middle class urban kid experience, right? Not going to speak to a general audience. Um, <clears throat> but some of the other things that I think changed, right? I mean, seeing the Gundam fight Mechagodzilla, right? Jaw dropping moment. For the film, and you know, people were cheering in uh, in the screening I was at. I, I'm sure it must have gotten even better reception over there, right? Well, the Gundam. Oh, yeah. everyone lost it at the Gundam. I lost right? it at the Gundam. But in the actually, I lost it. I lost, I lost it more to Chucky. Yeah, Chucky. I lost it when Chucky came. But out. That it, was but great. in the book, okay, where that was a one on one fight. In the book, it was a seven on four fight with seven. Uh, on on like the IOI side, seven different mechs, and on the the heroes, uh, you know, uh, Wade side, him and his, three of his friends were in three different mechs, you know, not just one Gundam. It it was like it was so much bigger. <laughs> and again, I know that they you know had to simplify things. Um, one of the major simplifications and removals is the removal of Ultraman from the novel, um, yeah. who plays a major part. And and the book is a li- little bit darker because I won't say this for anybody who's not read the book and wants to read the book. Not everybody makes it to the end of the story like they do in the novel. And that was a major change, too. And again, that's a very much a Spielberg-esque kind of move, you know, family-friendly kind of thing. Um, 
so the stakes are not the same in that in that final battle and but um ultraman plays a big part in it and you know i knew going in that there was going to be no ultraman because ultraman as a property is still under litigation in japan and i think as i read spielberg actually tried to get them to settle and they you know even him coming over and knocking on their door couldn't get them to settle so um i knew he wasn't going to be in it and that was fine but again just as an example of how much scaled down the film is um you you get that idea the the one on one was actually a 7 on 4 kind of thing um the second challenge i mean did you like the second challenge in the shining house the Shining was great. I mean, yeah. I'm, the thing is, I I don't have the same sort of reverence to The Shining, but I, I recognize all the reference. I mean, that's yeah. how influential the The Shining is. So, yeah, I thought that was awesome. I mean, yeah. the way if we talk about getting rights, I mean, imagine trying to get rights to recreate The Shining. I mean, how much do you think Spielberg had to go through to get the rights to do I don't that? Think, because apparently he's like was good friends with uh, Kubrick at the time. Yeah, that that was being yeah, made. Well, yeah. So I think he it's, did, he did you know, AI. Yeah, and this is this is a you know a sort of an homage to his friendship with him, and you know it's fine. It's again, as I said, the challenge in the in the book not quite as scary, um, but definitely more again versed in the idea of computer geeks from that era. It would have been neat to see them kind of try um, if they could do pull this off, kind of a Forrest Gump film, but for the current era. Um, and the, the, oh, it, by the end when they're showing, and again, this is the thing, like you said, you got to see this on a big screen because you, you watch this on an iPad or you watch this on something small and you're, you're going to miss a lot of the detail because there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. And I'm thinking there's stuff that's probably there that maybe they didn't get a lot of the actual rights to, you know, maybe like a silhouette here or a slightly pixelated, you know, in the background character there. That you'll recognize, but maybe not enough to, to take to court for <laughs> litigation. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. But I was so disappointed when they had the the you know current movie Ninja Turtles big and, and uh, in your face there. I was like, no. I mean, I, at least I, at least give us the '90s Ninja Turtles. <laughs> because it would look fake as hell on like in that but they kind had, of, you know they had battle toads i saw i very specifically saw a battle toad in two sort of wide shot scenes um a, a couple other things like there's a big scene of like some halo um uh super troopers you know uh, running around so there's a lot of like if you've played a video game since the 2000s there's a lot of stuff you're going to recognize they went through Minecraft world, um, which was not mentioned in the, in the book. You know, in the book, they're talking about so many worlds um, that are places that you can go. There's a, you know, Lord of the Rings planet. There's, uh, of course, lots of Star Wars stuff that couldn't get referenced here, too. Um, I think I read that nothing from Disney is, was able to be referenced. So no Star no, Wars, no uh -huh. Marvel, no Spider-Man. Yep, um, yep. None of that. And I guess that's... Um, one of the reasons why one of the very cool mechs that we see in that final fight scene that I wanted to see, we didn't get to see because it's kind of a Spider-Man reference, though a Spider-Man from Japan, we might say. Um, anyway, the uh, so, you know, again, there's a lot of stuff to see, you know, moments, characters walking behind the ground in the backgrounds. It's a movie you need to see more than once to catch a lot of that stuff. 
a lot of little little references too, especially like when you go to H's garage and stuff. He's pulling out chips, and and here too, uh, another area where they really had to cut back because in the novel, like each of the characters has their own ship, and you actually have to go to different places by ship sometimes because you know teleportation is very expensive, and um, they cut out completely a lot of the normal functions of of uh, the Oasis. So like Wade has to go to school <laughs> in the Oasis and he has to like go to classes. And I was hoping they were going to spend at least a little time looking at some of the actual sort of day-to-day culture that goes on in the Oasis rather than just, you know, everybody kind of hunting for the, for the egg. But, you know, they just kind of had to compress <laughs> it down. And the, the hunt itself, I mean, takes, uh, I think uh, like a year once they, once Wade discovers the the first key, because it takes them a long time. Uh, Wade has to move because he starts out in Oklahoma and that's where the stacks are. And then he ends up moving um, to to Ohio at one point in the book. And so it's just the, the time compression. It seems like everything in the game, once it starts rolling, happens like in a week or so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 it is what it is. It's. It's there. It's got a lot of uh, Easter eggs for you to find. Um, I just, I mean, it's some of the changes for me felt like, all right, if we look at a book like Lord of the Rings, right? And Peter Jackson took Lord of the Rings. He kept the major framework in place. He didn't change major character events, right? Because it's a classic piece of fiction. Now, I'm not saying Ready Player One is a classic piece of fiction, but when you change major character events, that really starts to irk me. I mean, um, if if Peter Jackson had said, hey, let's keep Boromir alive because he's a really cool character, or let's have the Hobbit Mary kill the King of the Nazgul instead of Eow- Eowyn because that would make for a cool narrative, right? Um, it's like, no. I didn't get any of that just now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you wouldn't do that, right? You wouldn't. I be- don't know. I don't know who, who killed Eowyn. <laughs> I know Boromir. I know Boromir. Right. right. He, he's uh, he's uh, Sean Bean, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's... Oh, I actually got it right. Oh my god, yeah. Because <laughs> Sean Bean always dies. He dies in everything. <laughs> yes. That's just yes. the nature of Sean Bean. Um, so that's a safe gamble. But yeah, I mean, it's like you you change major character events like that, and um, I don't know. It, it just sits wrong with me. So well, like, here's the thing. Okay, okay. The thing you were talking about, how in the book, in the middle of the book, he moves and everything. Um, from a scriptwriter point of view, that seems like too much plot. You know, yeah. yeah, the story needs to keep going. And actually, once you mentioned that these schools, he goes to school in the Oasis, that actually solves a big, big question I had is that even kids, do they just spend all day on that thing? Yeah. So if there's, if you say that, oh, they're also going to school in the Oasis, it actually makes perfect sense. And yeah. I wish they had shot that, actually. Yeah, that was one of the things I was kind of looking forward to how they depict that because basically the world is so sucked out of resources and everybody is so poor. Um, but one of the things that Halliday ended up doing was he made schools, um, going to school in the Oasis free. Um, and that kind of plays into because because where Wade ends up coming from, you know, he's super poor, and they they change the nature of, of the relationship with his aunt a little bit. It was very antagonistic in in the book, um, and so he's very much kind of on his own, and he only wants to spend all his time uh, in the Oasis. So there, you know, there's a little bit more development there, a little bit more world building uh, as such. 
Um, and I know, again, they have to they have to get rid of a lot of that. But, um, you know, as I said, movie fans, 80s, 90s, anyone who played the video game since 2001, you're going to have a lot of fun with this. Um, fans in the novels, uh, you're probably going to be a bit disappointed. My biggest disappointments, though, as I said, no D&D for me. No Pac-Man. They left out they, Pac-Man. They mentioned Pac-Man, though. They a couple mentioned of times in the film. it, but, but the... the, the because Pac-Man in the in the book plays a major role for you know you know why that little coin he gets uh-huh. that that saves him at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's because of Pac-Man, not because of some <laughs> robot encyclopedia guy. Um, <laughs> but you know, but the thing is, Pixels already did Pac-Man. Yeah, that's true. Last year, so they like they're like <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna go what a Chris yeah. Columbus movie's done. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I mean, it does have some great movie moments too. Um, there's this thing at the end, which is also in the book called the orb of Osivox, which is like this big, massive, impenetrable barrier. Um, they, they use a movie callback to shut it down in the book. They use a different movie callback to shut it down here. And I thought the one they used here was equally as good. And if you can, if you know what that is, when, when Artemis goes up, she recites a certain incantation. And if you know what that incantation is, you're a super geek like me. <laughs> it's spoiler. It's spoiler area, Paul. It's yeah, it's 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 the incantation from the movie Excalibur that uh, Merlin says whenever he wants to evoke magic. So damn. Yeah. Um. So there, I've put all my geek cards on the table. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you're gonna. You're not gonna score the ladies there. I think, Paul. No, sorry. No, no, no scores for me. Yeah. And it's a good thing my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. So. <laughs> um, what were your favorite moment, moments? What what really stood out for you? Well, I, the, the, I think the challenge, the two challenges, um, the Shining, uh, the Mario Kart. Uh, I, even damn it, Paul! Now you got me calling a Mario Kart. It was actually just a great car race. I'm not gonna call it Mario Kart. Um, the ending, the the reset, the reboot. Does that happen in the book? The whole thing where they he uses that thing and then the entire entire oasis goes. Yeah. The um. Oh, I, it's, it's a it's like a big bomb and it just kills yeah. everybody. Yeah, that's from the book yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, although um, although I, it sets up a different problem for for Wade, he has to overcome it in a slightly different way. But yeah, yeah. I also kind of like uh, I like T.J. Miller. Obviously, his lines were all improvised. It was clearly very T.J. Miller in that in that sense. You could definitely tell it's T.J. Miller writing his own lines. Um, so I like that though. He liked his character even at the end. He's like. Look, man, like, you don't want to do that reboot thing. Like, even I have my... I'm the villain, but I have my limits, Yeah, right? <laughs> that was really cool. Um, yeah, uh, a couple of those. And a couple of the, the, the whole... The Gundam, of course. Everyone lost it to Gundam. I lost it to Gundam. I love Chucky coming out. Um, that little bit, Jack Slater. Uh, you probably picked it up. Jack Slater showing up at the car race. Um, I, I on, a, on a marquee. Missed that. Yeah, um, yeah, they pass the cinema and it says, Now playing Jack Slater. That's really cool. Um, but I hate, the thing is, I hate for the film to be remembered for its Easter egg because that, again, overshadows what Spielberg is doing here. And that's that just making, he, he calls this one of the three most difficult films he's ever done. I can see why, because of the, the uh, it's practically almost animated, half of the film is animated, um, and the other half isn't, obviously. 
But um, I could see why he calls it the most, one of three difficult, um, three most difficult films he's ever done. But he still makes it look so easy. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's just the amazing thing. Um, and yeah, okay, it's not as it's not the techniques are not as you know, what's the word intricate as say his other films. Um, Talk about Minority Report or or uh, Jaws or whatever. But it's just so been so long since you've seen like. <clears throat> a Spielberg film that's just fun and and it kind of reminds you why he's always been the master and he always be remembered as the master and um if anyone doesn't like it well they can just go watch the post because he made that during the post production of this movie because that's how badass Steven Spielberg is <laughs> right like yeah. Spielberg knows he knows that he doesn't just make one kind of movie and that's his brilliance. He does. He goes and makes a big popcorn movie. Then he goes and makes something that you know meaningful to him. And then he goes and makes another popcorn movie. And he just and he sometimes does it in the same year. And it's amazing what what he can do here. And I don't want to gush anymore about Spielberg, but um, yeah. And so some of my favorite moments. I try to not to bring in moments where I catch Easter egg, but I can't help it. You know, like oh Jack Slater was cool, but you know, I mean Chucky was not really an Easter egg. I mean that's just a that's a really explicit cameo. I mean, someone even says F word Chucky. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. Um, so yeah, those things. And but I didn't like the ending. I thought the ending was a bit too rushed, and I didn't like the voiceover. Like I said, I didn't like the message in the end. It felt disingenuous. Um, but I think really the good outweighs the bad in this case. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabbar of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. And we get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at eastswests. And you can opine with us over there about all things Terrace House 2, if you so desire. (laughs) Uh, Kevin, where can they find out more about you? Uh, I have a website called Asia and Cinema. Uh, sometimes I update that. Yes, if you update, actually, I don't know, Paul, when you're going to upload this, but I will be doing a Hong Kong Film Awards live blog. I haven't written the post yet, but I will do it soon. Uh, I am doing a Hong Kong Film Awards live blog on April 15th, Hong Kong time, uh, at night. Um, and as terrible as Hong Kong Cinema was, well, we will whine about the state of Hong Kong Cinema during the live blog, so don't worry about that. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be awesome. Um, you can come and join our Facebook page and Twitter, Asia and Cinema. I will probably do my uh, Hong Kong Film Awards updates there. Um, you can also read my work on Discovery and Silk Road Magazine on Cathay Pacific Airways and Cathay Dragon Airlines. Um, and if you're in Udine at Udine Far East Film Festival, I will be there from the 20th until the end of the festival. Uh, so you can catch me if you listen to the show. Uh, I'm supposed to be hosting some forums, but I don't know when all, any of that stuff's happening. So if you find me, you can just catch me in the lobby or whatever. Um, let's have some coffee, whatever. It'd be great. I know at least one of our listeners is going to be there. So um, so I'll see you guys there. 
and yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. And uh, yeah, that's about it. All right, excellent. And as always, please check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Network for all the great work that they do. And speaking of that, our next show, episode 254, we'll be doing another episode of Hollywood on Kong, Hollywood on Hong Kong, our third episode, with uh, myself and Mr. Kenneth Brorson. We're going to be talking about the 1998 film Chinese Box from Wayne Wang. So uh, that will be coming up on our next show. For as far as our East Screen, West Screen shows in proper, um, I'm going to be traveling abroad as well as Mr. Ma, and I will be in the Fragrant Harbor in the coming month or so. And I'm not sure what's going to get recorded when or how at this point, but hopefully we'll have uh, some things to talk about. And I'm very hopeful they'll have some Hong Kong movies especially to talk about in the coming days. But right now I just don't know what's on the agenda, but it should be something. So uh, until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying we'll catch you in the Oasis and see you next time. See you next time, everybody.